I'm assuming uh, folks will be uh, filtering back in from lunch, but I want to uh, get started just to encourage them to, uh, to hasten back. Um, uh, so I uh, hope everyone enjoyed lunch and, uh, and that great uh, address from Professor Hansford. Uh, very much in line with those uh, issues raised there, I think, uh, is the panel we have coming up next. Um, it has become increasingly uh, popular, uh, not just in, by sophisticated intelligence agencies, but by ordinary law enforcement to attempt to increase their effectiveness to preempt and deter uh, ordinary crime uh, by using sophisticated analysis of data to target resources. Uh, and in the abstract, uh, that is something that's hard to object to. Uh, one doesn't want police to deploy their resources ineffectively, but in, in, in a way that does the most to reduce crime. Um, but there are a range of privacy and equity concerns uh, raised by uh, the use of uh, sophisticated data, data analytics by police departments, uh, uh, raise the specter of a kind of pre-crime uh, approach to some people, uh, and that raise questions about uh, what, what happens to uh, the vast amounts of data that are collected for that purpose. Um, so to lead uh, discussion, we have an excellent panel lined up that will be uh, moderated by uh, Washington Report reporter Justin Juvenal, who has covered the policing extensively for the Post and, and covers uh, this issue in particular uh, with great insight, and also has the unique distinction of being named as a, a individual exception by President Donald Trump to the generalization that the press is all nonsense. Um, something he can he can put on his resume. Um, I will I will uh, I will uh, pass the, the baton to Justin to uh, to lead the discussion. My name is Justin Juvenal, and uh, I am a justice reporter at the Washington Post. I wanted to welcome you all to our panel today, and uh, just get, I'll give a quick frame for the discussion before turning it over to the people who actually really know the real stuff. Um, predictive and big data policing has been one of the most buzzed about and controversial topics in law enforcement in recent years. I'm sure you've seen some of the understated headlines. Quote, police use minority report AI to stop crime before it happens, unquote. And quote, big brother is watching your every move, unquote. I'm sure you'd like to see those, John. <laughs> yes, minority report is never cited enough. Yeah. Uh, flashy headlines aside, it's true that uh, the big data approach that has revolutionized banking, insurance, and retail has come to law enforcement in a major way. Police departments and courts are increasingly turning to predictive algorithms and manipulating large data sets to make decisions about where officers patrol, which felons get parole, and who among the public represent a threat, among many other things. On the one hand, supporters have hailed the systems as making police smarter, more efficient, and less biased. On the other, on the other hand, critics argue these systems may actually increase policing of the poor and minorities represent a threat to privacy and often don't work as advertised. Today, we'd like to drill down beyond the hype and the alarm to understand how these systems really work, what their impacts really are, and ultimately how effective they are at reducing crime. So we've assembled an excellent panel here today. We've got Andrew Ferguson from the University of District of Columbia School of Law, Margaret Hu from Washington and Lee Law School, and we have John Grant, a civil liberties engineer for Palantir, which is one of the largest makers of big data software for law enforcement. So just a quick housekeeping note, we'll reserve the last 15 or 20 minutes uh, of the panel discussion for uh, audience questions, and there'll be some uh, folks circulating with microphones that you can 
go to to uh, ask questions. Uh, and panel, f please feel free to jump in and uh, talk and ask questions of each other. Don't wait for me. So let's start at the beginning. Andrew, uh, you've actually literally written the book on uh, predictive policing. It's called The Rise of Big Data Policing. Could you explain the role of big data and predictive analytics in policing and talk through how various police departments and courts are using these systems? Sure. You know, big data is changing, if not revolutionizing. It's at least transforming what law enforcement are doing right now. It's changing where they patrol, who they target, how they see the world around them in terms of surveillance system. Uh, it is changing how they investigate. If you go to a modern police squad car in LA or Philadelphia uh, or uh, several other major cities, that squad car has a computer in it that it has a forecast of predicted crime, an area where the patrol officer is supposed to be at the right time to deter that forecast criminal activity. In some of the more sophisticated models, the colors literally change as you drive from a high burglary area to a high theft area. And you can see the environment change around you. Some of the other companies have tactics that are actually supposed to be done in response to this particular crime. The information in the forecast is done by prior crime statistics. Some models add other things. Weather, bad guys don't like getting wet, so if it rains, things change. But there might be major events, sports games on Sundays, or big concerts or other things that could change crime patterns in a city. Um, predictive pol policing in terms of place changes where the police go. But it doesn't just stop with place, it also has people. In Chicago, the Chicago Strategic Subjects List called the Heat List is an algorithmically de defined or described uh, list of the top individuals police think are either at risk for violence, like they might shoot someone, or be shot themselves. Uh, and this list, if you make this list, uh, you might get a knock on the door from a Chicago detective. Uh, you may get called into a community meeting to say, hey, we think uh, you're involved in crime. Uh, and it is algorithmically derived. It is, you know, the math of trying to predict from prior arrests and other sort of associations whether you are uh, at risk or not. In situations like downtown Manhattan, you have surveillance cameras, 9,000 linked surveillance cameras to a command center that's watching the lower Manhattan, seeing what's going on. Um, you know that if you are sitting here today, you're probably checking your smartphone and you have a little spy that you're checking, right? Because telling you everywhere you're going. There have been a couple of panels already talking about the data trails we leave behind that are wonderfully helpful for investigation. Uh, and so these big data technologies, this idea of predictive analytics, mass surveillance, and the ability to data mine is changing who police are targeting, where they're going, what they're doing, and really changes some of the nature of what policing is uh, in America and these big cities adopting these technologies. Great. Hey, John, uh, a lot of times this predicted policing is compared to the movie Minority Report, which we already discussed. Uh, I assume Palantir does not have clairvoyance floating in water tanks at headquarters. <laughs> Could you discuss exactly what Palantir does in this space? Uh, yeah, so yes, unfortunately, um, uh, our, one of our earliest deployments was in Los Angeles, and given the water situation in California, we just can't afford to have that many water tanks. <laughs> um, no, uh, so just to give a little bit of context about Palantir, because maybe everyone's not familiar, but not turning this into an advertisement, uh, Palantir builds a data analytics platform, a product uh, that we sell to customers in a variety of areas, not just intelligence and law enforcement, but also health analysis, fraud, uh, banking, all sorts of all sorts of places. It's a very versatile product. The product is supported on site by engineers who help to make sure that it's working, that it keeps working every day. 
but they are not doing analysis uh, of the data. They're just working with the, uh, with the actual analyst and helping them. And they will even customize the platform for specific needs of the customers, again, building off that core capability. Uh, Palantir does not have data. The company does not have data, and we don't sell data. We don't connect deployments. We don't connect different customers to each other so that they're sharing data. The only data in a Palantir system at a particular customer is the data they had when we showed up that day. Uh, now, whatever you're picturing for data in law enforcement right now, dial it back about 15 years. Uh, because we go into these places, and some of these are, are highly funded federal agencies, state and local law enforcement organizations, and we're dealing with 10, 15, 20, 30, whatever systems of data, all separate, very balkanized, and all in a wide variety of formats, including in some places in the last five years we've gone in and there have been systems that are literally old computer terminals that are green screen, uh, that are still pulling up data from one database that can't be connected to anything else, and we've had to actually find an 85-year-old IT expert who was retired to explain to us how the system was set up because nobody knew. So we're not going in with these perfect data sets that we can do a lot of sophisticated analytics with. Uh, so to have a transformative effect on law enforcement, just creating a system where you can query multiple systems all with one search query is, is huge for them uh, and increases the ability of law enforcement to act efficiently to be able to find what they're looking for and connect these data sets. So in terms of predictive analytics, we don't actually do that much, uh, in part because we are more committed to human-driven analysis. We think that a person is always going to be the better analyst with computers and also obviously creates a little bit more of a safeguard in there because they have to understand and be able to explain what they're doing with the data and how they're interpreting the data. Uh, so the kind of predictive things we'll do is actually just putting information in front of a person in the right way that will then help them actually make the prediction. So an example of that might be you know, if you had data from certain sources, you might be able to figure out, okay, person X goes to the gym every Friday at 8 a.m. for the last 15 weeks, and then an analyst could look at that and say, okay, this Friday there's a good chance that he's going to be at the gym at 8 a.m. That's the kind of prediction you do. Uh, we also do support some mapping, crime mapping, which Andrew talks about quite a bit in his book. Uh, and that is taking past uh, criminal events, or past crimes, uh, geolocation information, putting it on a map, uh, calls for service, basic infrastructure, things like that that might contribute uh, to, um, to figuring out the likelihood or the, the poten uh, potential for crime in a particular area. Uh, and then law enforcement makes resourcing decisions on that. You know, where do we send patrols? Where do we set up speed traps? That kind of thing. Uh, we do not score individuals. We don't do any kind of algorithms that are sort of picking out an individual and saying this person is likely uh, to be committing a crime. It's just not something that we work on. Um, the most, uh, and this is covered uh, really well in Andrew's book as well, the, probably the most... I don't want to say it's minority report-ish, but uh, probably one of the areas that could sound at first blush to be most concerning uh, is work that we do in New Orleans Police Department, which is involving uh, predicting the likelihood of homicides. Uh, so it turns out that homicide in New Orleans is often linked to past homicides. So there's gangs, there's family connections, and there's sort of a, a, sort of a cycle of retaliation that happens. Uh, so when someone is murdered, law enforcement in New Orleans can get a, a pretty good indication of who might be next, uh, or is likely to be next. And so what we will support is a social network analysis. You can actually map the connections of people, friends and, and you know, associates and gangs, family, et cetera. Uh, they can look at that social network graph and say, based on their experience, say, okay, well, we probably want to worry about these people uh, as being likely targets. And then that sparks uh, some intervention in the community, going to churches, going to families, and saying, hey, we've got to stop this cycle of violence. And it's been pretty successful in New Orleans. We're not sure that that would apply elsewhere. I think New Orleans is kind of a unique case just in terms of the, the spread of uh, the spread of murder and how that works. Um, so we're not sure that this is, and again, it's not algorithmic. It's based on the officer's experience, and we're just presenting data to them in a way that helps them apply that experience. Uh, 
Just one follow-up on that. What sort of data sets are you linking together? Could you give us examples of those? And what, what does a police officer in the squad car on the street in the office see when all of these things come together? Uh, it just varies by deployment. Again, it's whatever they have. Kinds of things we would integrate would be case files. So they might have old case file systems. Uh, they might uh, have... Um, uh, they can have open source data that may be getting, including uh, you know reports from journalists and things like that, newspaper articles and things like that that they keep. Uh, if there are Alper systems, this is the license plate reader systems, we can help integrate that data and do mapping. Um, there are going to be fingerprint uh, databases. There's all sorts of databases that law enforcement checks. Um, in some areas, there's going to be gun registry information. That might be interesting to officers if they're going somewhere and they want to know is there a potential to gun on the premises. Uh, and usually, these are, again, in separate systems. In a lot of cases, uh, in a lot of cases when we start a deployment, uh, a dispatcher will get a phone call. Uh, and they'll say, you know, I, I, so-and-so is happening here. Such and such thing is happening here. Uh, and they actually have to log into six or seven different systems over the course of a phone call and type in the name. And they pull this information together. And we just do that all at once. Um, and then we provide that information to the analysts. And depending on the setup, sometimes it can be to officers in their cars. It just kind of depends um, on, you know, how the, how the organization is set up. Mm -hmm. Okay. Margaret, turning to you, uh, perhaps the most hotly debated topic in predictive policing is the impact of these systems on low-income and minority communities. You've written about this topic somewhat. Um, some police and courts say these systems help reduce bias by letting data, not prejudiced and fallible humans, make decisions about who may be a threat for gun violence or who gets parole. Uh, some civil liberties advocates argue that the data driving these systems is often racially skewed, so the systems end up magnifying problems of, of bias. Who's right? Are machines a magic bullet for bias, or are they as racist as we are? Uh Thanks for that question. I think that it's really important for us to use this opportunity to interrogate assumptions that underlie these technologies and big data systems. A lot of times people assume that technology is race neutral, that these databases are efficacious in their ability to predict crime. And I think we need to start by trying to look very closely at those assumptions that we have. As you point out, a lot of scholars and researchers, experts have stated that you may have racist training data. For example, if you have over-policed neighborhoods, that what might look like very race-neutral data that just points police in the direction of where they should police is actually built into it a form of bias. And other experts have raised the problem of implicit bias, cognitive bias, confirmation bias, and the way that you build these algorithms. So I think that these are all very important questions to ask. What are the methods? How do we interrogate whether they work? And who is interpreting the big data result? And are there sufficient safeguards, civil rights safeguards, et cetera, to make sure that we have some type of ability to appeal those processes when it turns out that bias is shown? But beyond that, I think that what we really need to do is also step back and ask ourselves about how this system of horizontal policing is significantly different than the traditional models of policing that were vertical in nature. So traditional policing models started with a crime, a suspect. It was a needle, and then you looked for the data to support whether or not you could then prosecute, whether you had enough evidence that there was a crime, that that's the correct suspect. In a big data world, a lot of times people talk about looking for a needle in the haystack. And Rachel Levinson-Waldman, I, I know, is speaking later on. But she says that really what's happened with big data cyber surveillance is it is a put the haystack before the needle approach 
to policing. In other words, instead of starting with the crime or the suspect, you start with the data. And you ask yourself, from this collection of data, what types of crimes and suspects can I find? And I think that to answer your question, Justin, what we need to ask ourselves is this important question. How does this flipping the investigatory model on its head, instead of starting with the question, but starting with the data to answer the questions, making minority communities and people of color more vulnerable? Do they create more suspicious data, for example? Because a lot of times in these big data predictive policing models, you're not necessarily looking for a suspicious person. You're looking for anomalous data, outlier data. What can the algorithm show that somebody does not seem to fall within the expectations of the algorithms? And how is this leading to discrimination that maybe our civil rights laws do not encompass? Thank you. Uh, John, can you talk about how Palantir tries to engineer bias out of its systems? Uh, it's two main, two main ways that we might encounter this. One uh, is dealing with either conscious or unconscious bias in the, on, in the, uh, by the user, right? The analyst looking at the data. Uh, and so we think about how do you present data? Is it necessary to present information that might lead to bias, like race or religion or something like that, uh, to actually accomplish the outcome of whatever analytic workflow? And by managing data on a very granular level, you can basically not present that information. Um, or we question whether it even needs to be in the system at all. Um, and, uh, and so we, we can try to address it that way. The really the more challenging thing is that obviously um, you're dealing with legacy data sets, and, and some of these go back a long way uh, in law enforcement agencies, and due to systemic issues with uh, racism and other things in the past, there's going to be bias in this data. So the question is, and, and we want to get to the accurate answer, right? If the data is biased, then it's not telling you the truth about the world, so you do want to correct for the bias, but the question is how? Uh, do you look at the data? Can you analyze it in some way and identify the bias? And then do you correct it? Well, what's the way to correct it? If 70% if of your arrests are for African Americans, uh, then you might say, well, that's, that's way more than the percentage of African Americans in the community. But is it fair to say, OK, you should, everybody should be arrested by the percentage of people in the community? That doesn't really make sense either. What is the mathematical formula to actually figure this out? If you can't correct it, then you have to think about, OK, how do you at least communicate the bias effectively? How do you tell the analysts? How do you tell the consumers of the analytic product uh, that there is potential bias in the data sets that could be skewing the results? Uh, we're still trying to figure all that out. And then the real question is, too, how do you actually work with law enforcement and communicate this to them, right? I mean, so I'd love to go in. My team, I, the Privacy Solutions Engineering teams, is kind of stuff we think about. I'd love to go in and be able to do some analysis and kind of present a report or something and say, here are the potential issues for bias uh, that we found in your data. But you're also going to be handing them a document that basically writes out a, a history of racism or whatever in this organization that you know, could be FOIA'd. And now it becomes sort of the, the uh, path to a lawsuit or something like that. And obviously, that creates resistance with your customers. They don't necessarily, they may not invite you in even do it or let you do the analysis, um, which is bad because that means you get a bad outcome from the, uh, from the, the data work. So um, we're still struggling with exactly how to deal with that. But I think, you know, again, if you could say, look, this isn't telling you, the data isn't telling you the truth, uh, and we all want to get to the truth, then that hopefully gets them to collaborate with you. Have any departments actually invited you in to do these kind of analysis, uh, analyses, or are they been resistant so far? Uh, I mean, we've, we've definitely, I don't think it's been invited us in to do it. I think it's, it's a case of actually having to show them that it's possible. And it's sort of a, a chicken and egg kind of thing. You've got to get the data to sort of prove that, that we can make this correction, but you know, we can't get the data. So it's, it's kind of a, <laughs> it's tricky. Um, you haven't done that yet? No. <clears throat> OK. Andrew, would you like to add anything to this topic? Yeah, I, mean, I think what's so fascinating is like this conversation we just had isn't happening in 90% of or 99%
of the companies using these new technologies. The idea, and give Palantir credit, to have civil liberties engineers to think through these should be the conversations that are happening in every rollout. We're not just talking about big data systems or predictive analytics, predictive policing, or surveillance cameras, but each one of those technologies has similar concerns about race bias, transparency, how it distorts constitutional law, and every technology and every police force should be having these conversations. You're right, it's fraught because you're raising the problems that people will litigate, and they will litigate in a policing context, um, but there are also conversations you have to have before you use it, or else they're gonna get litigated sometime down the line. Uh, and we have not, this entire story of the rise of big data policing is a story of implementing the technology first and then dealing with the backlash of people saying, oh my gosh, this is terrible, this is Minority Report. And sometimes that's unthinking in terms of the fears sometimes are greater than the reality. It's easier to picture the perfect Tom Cruise world and not the blue screen computer that doesn't turn on and that no one uses. Um, but the reality is that these conversations need to be had now at these places because these concerns are real and they're actually solutions. That's the weird thing with technology and data is you can actually engineer some of these things out. So it may not be a perfect world, but it's a better world. But you have to have those conversations at the front end. And we're not having them. We're not having them nationally. We're not having them locally. Uh, and we need to have them more. That's great. Uh, let's talk about privacy for a minute, Andrew. Um, some of these uh, new predictive systems are powered by mass surveillance, which you mentioned earlier. You have police, for instance, monitoring social media for gang activity, uh, threats, terroristic threats, or mass shooting threats, and other illicit, illicit activity. Others are collating uh, data from commercial databases, uh, license plate readers, and other troves. Um, Taken together, law enforcement now has an unprecedented power to create snapshots of who we are and what we're doing. Can you talk about some of these privacy concerns that are being created by these uh, big data systems and predictive policing systems? We should all be terrified in our own way, and we should all recognize that there is a response to this, right? Um, right now, the data sets that are collecting your social media and collecting your Google searches and collecting your uh, you know, public surveillance are all disparate. They're all different. They're owned by different entities. Uh, you might be willingly giving up your privacy to Google, but not to the FBI. You might be willingly, you know, tweeting about what you had for dinner, but would rather not have an FBI agent seeing what you had for dinner. Um, and so we, as a society, are evolving to try to come up with different um, conceptions of what privacy might mean. Uh, the earlier panel today about uh, Carpenter was all about the Supreme Court trying to constitutionalizing uh, uh, privacy. Um, but the reality is we are behind. The technology is pushing us. It's changing privacy expectations. It's changing the realities. And the law, be it statutory, be it regulatory, be it constitutional, simply has not caught up and hasn't even come close to catching up. Uh, and unfortunately, because technology is innovating pretty quickly, the technology keeps going ahead even when the law, you know, Carpenter you know, is a case where we're literally debating, you know, cell phone technology from you know, years ago that isn't even the current cell phone technology, right? Yeah. Um, and that's part of the problem of how the law is usually behind. It doesn't mean we shouldn't be pushing these forwards because we could really actually have these conversations right now. Uh, credit to Matt Feeney at Cato, who was saying in the New York Times, we need to have essentially moments of local surveillance control where people are uh, coming forward and saying, let's talk about it. Right now, tomorrow, we could have a debate about privacy in Washington, D.C. and the different ways, uh, commercial, consumer, government, and whether we're okay with those. But we have to have that discussion now. And we haven't really begun having that discussion, in part because we're just sort of seeing 
this fear, right? We're seeing the 1984 th fear. We're seeing this world of how all of our privacy, some of it's willingly given up, some of it's taken, uh, is changing our relationship with our government, our relationship with our smartphones, our relationship with uh, the consumer people who are saying, you know, this is a trade-off. We'll give you a lot of really cool stuff. You just got to give us all your data, and we'll see if that's a fair trade. And could you also expand on, you, you start off your book with a real-time crime center. Could you tell people a little bit about real-time crime centers and the role they're playing in this mass surveillance and how police are actually collecting and bringing all this data together? Right, so like in lower Manhattan right now, as we speak, there are linked camera systems. I think 9,000 linked cameras. Most of them are being redirected back to a central cons cons uh, control center that NYPD can actually watch the cameras. Of course, you can't watch 9,000 cameras, so they have automated... Uh, prompts and automated things. So you can see if someone who puts down a bag and walks away is, are they an absent-minded tourist or are they an even-minded terrorist? You want to know and you want to be able to have those prompts, right? And that allows you to, that system is allowing you to collect um, the automated license plate rear so you know the cars that are coming through. Uh, you know, we fortunately do not have the facial recognition technology. That's not there. Uh, it might be there in China. I know some experts in the room are talking about that uh, here in, in New York. But uh, uh, we don't have that quite yet, but the idea of being able to, to move in real time. And again, that seems frightening and that seems threatening, but you know, when you have a terrorist bombing, which apparently we did this week, you know, you can see the need and why NYPD wants that, why they want to be able to respond, why they want to be able to pull back the cameras to find out, oh look, there's this person, there's no other threats, we can you know, start running the subways again and make everyone late the normal way in New York as opposed to the terrorist way that they're late. And that need and that desire to be able to control that is why they're pushing forward and why they have these command centers. You're seeing it in Chicago, you're seeing it in LA, you're seeing this as sort of the future of how to sort of situate control of a surveillance architecture that we are building in the police. And usually in these cases, all local police. They're like big local police departments. Yeah. John, how does Palantir address the privacy concerns of some of this collected information? Because when you combine all this data together from databases, license plate readers, social media, you can really you know, create a really stunning portrait of someone. Mm -hmm. Well, so we have to start by recognizing that uh, you just aren't going to be able to flip a switch and have technology protect privacy, right? It, it, we can't even define privacy, the term privacy, right? Legal scholars are still debating exactly how to define it. Um, so you have to sort of acknowledge that it's going to have to be a collaboration between the technology, the policymakers, the oversight, the advocates, everyone's going to have to be engaged. So what we think about when we're designing our capabilities, and this is what my team does, we're actually an engineering team. We're not a, we're not a legal advice team, we're an engineering team. We build. Uh, we're actually thinking about building technical capabilities to support rigorous oversight. Uh, and management of data. So Palantir doesn't collect data, but obviously data is used within Palantir, and so we think there's gotta be some rules about how it's used, and you've gotta sort of control the use of the data once it's in the system. The rules can't stop at collection. Uh, so we'll build things like very granular access controls. Most uh, databases now, uh, you have a login and a password, you can see the entire database. Palantir has access controls on a data point by data point basis, and you can make very granular decisions so that people only see the data absolutely necessary or relevant to whatever they're doing. Uh, we build data retention managers. Uh, so it turns out the reason a lot of people don't delete data is because they're just worried they're going to delete something they need. If you give them an interface that says, hey, this data is about to be deleted in two weeks, is this still necessary? 
necessary uh, for something that's ongoing. What we found is it actually encourages people to delete because before they would just put a blanket long-term retention date on it because they're worried. Now they say, all right, I know I can put a shorter retention date on this because I know I'll be prompted before it has to go. Uh, and I can save it if I need to. Uh, and then audit analytics, building the ability to look. All systems are audited. No one reads audit logs because they're hard to read. So if you give people the ability to look at how users are using the system, uh, then they can actually go in and, and conduct really intelligent oversight and actually find out. The, some of the best oversight that happens now, uh, they will pull random search queries. Uh, this, is in, this is in some, I won't say. Uh, but they will pull random search queries, go to an analyst and say, why did you search for this six months ago? That's probably the, the best in oversight in a lot of places right now. That's obviously not enough. Uh, and then the major thing we do, we say no. If someone asks us to build something and it concerns us as a company, and we try to be a values-driven company, and, and the engineers that work there are values-driven people, we ask ourselves, do we want to live in the world that this will create? And if the answer is no, then we say no. And we have said no. We've walked away from contracts. We've walked away from customers. Uh, but we do take responsibility for what we build and how it's used. And so our, our big privacy protection is saying no. What are some examples of things you've been asked to build that you said no about? <laughs> I can't go into that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Margaret, um, let's talk about legal concerns. Um, do these predictive uh, systems, technologies raise any novel le legal concerns, particularly when you have systems uh, identifying people who haven't actually committed a crime yet? Yeah, absolutely. I think that pre-crime um, ambitions of the government that are now facilitated by these technological developments will increasingly place strain on our constitutional protections. And I think that a lot of our constitutional protections assume that we live in a small data world. And they were set up to put limitations on small data governance functions. But our constitution, I don't think, has kept pace, as Andrew just said, with the technological developments. And a lot of times, our, our statutes, our regulations, and our constitutional jurisprudence flows from the technological developments. It's highly reactive. And somehow, what we need to do is use the jurisprudence and the constitutional text that we have, I think, to draw a line in the stand and say that this is what we need to protect and force the technological development somehow to conform to those principles, freedoms, liberty, interests that we hold dear, or we have to limit the technology altogether out of our policing systems. So I think one or the other, either we have to expand our, our statutory protections, we have to expand our constitutional jurisprudence in the Fourth Amendment and the First Amendment, our due process protections, our equal protection um, jurisprudence, or we need to start just saying that these types of technologies are fundamentally inconsistent with our constitutional democracy. Just following up on that, have any localities, states, or even the federal government, have, has there been any steps taken so far to try to begin to re regulate predictive policing and big data policing? Well, we have a very active, um, I think right now, development at the state level, um, more so than at the federal level. Unfortunately, and we have a representative from CDT, a lot of organizations such as CDT are trying to get reforms such as ECPA reform, Electronic uh, Communications Privacy Act, Modernization Act that was proposed by Congress um, just a few months ago. But that cannot be sufficient alone. So relying on the states that are trying to rein in these programs and relying, I think, on statute, statutory frameworks alone will not get us there. And as you had heard from the Carpenter panel, this morning, 
the Fourth Amendment, these constitutional um, protections, I think, need to play a very significant role, in part because what's happening with these predictive policing um, programs is that it is a policing of our meta-selves. So a lot of times what's being policed is our data persona, our digital footprints, our, our digital avatars, our cyber presence, our online activities. It is not necessarily policing people. And as the harms become more metaphysical in nature, we need a more philosophical framing of what is being protected, I think. And that's why we need to reach the Constitution. Yeah. Andrew, a related question for you. I did an in-depth piece on a predictive software called Beware, uh, which was being piloted by the Fresno police in 2015. Um, so this, how the software works is when an officer responds to a call on a person, the software would scan the web, social media, arrest records, and other databases to calculate it a, a color-coded threat score, green, yellow, or red, that would rate the target's potential for violence. Um, I asked the company which makes the software in Trotto to explain exactly how it calculated the threat score, but they told me it was a trade secret. Uh, and I turned to the, the uh, chief of police in Fresno and also asked him if he had found out how the company calculated it, its threat scores, and he also told me that he was not able to learn that information, and I was kind of stunned. I mean, given the consequential nature of what this software was doing, the fact that neither the company would share publicly this information or even with the chief of police, I was, you know, I was pretty surprised. How transparent are police departments, agencies that use these new systems, and how transparent are the companies about how these systems are working? So it somewhat depends on the company. Some companies are actually realize it might be in their competitive advantage to be transparent. So you actually see in the predictive policing space, some companies that are saying, we're embracing, we'll put our algorithms up for people to look at, we'll tell you our data sets because we know that might get us a contract with different uh, law enforcement agencies that are worried about transparency. But there are a lot of situations like the Beware software that you talk about. By the way, as a result of that article, uh, which is included in the book, uh, they stopped doing the color coding, right? They realized that was a mistake. Um, where, whereas they were essentially taking some of these big data threads of consumer information, like the same stuff that gets you catalogs in the mail. I don't know if you guys get catalogs in the mail. I occasionally get catalogs in the mail for like super tough tools and other things that are clearly shows that big data does not know who I am because if you can't fix it with duct tape, can't do it in my house, right? But that error is brought into the fact of the police might get this information and want to know who's behind this door. And actually, if you stop and think about it, it actually makes pretty, a lot of sense for those police officers, right? If you're responding to a scene and there's a door and you don't know who's behind it, you kind of want to know, are they the people who you know, are subscriptions to like wine aficionado or guns and ammo? Are they, not that's wrong with the libertarian crowd, but still, the <laughs> idea being that you kind of want to know more information because it might help you. But you can imagine the danger if that inference is wrong. I get those wrong catalogs in the mail and the inference is wrong. Um, and so if that information is informing police about the threats in front of them, it could lead to tragedy. Um, and the, the question of transparency is such because if we don't understand that, we can't correct it, we can't cure it. We can't even say, take this with a, a, a measure of concern, officer, before you move forward. And that conversation needs to be happening before we send officers to the doors to make those dangerous, scary decisions about who's behind it when they want to effectuate a warrant. Um, and so these ideas of transparency uh, have, in many cases, not been at the forefront until people start, like you, start pushing. And we need to have more of those conversations. 
John, does Palantir allow the public to look under the hood of its system, see the code and all that, and how it works? Uh, to a large extent, um, we don't actually have any secret capabilities. Like, there's nothing that, that the, the system does that are, isn't publicly known. Uh, you can go to our YouTube channel and watch analytic workflows and see the kinds of things that are done. Uh, large chunks of our base code are actually open sourced on GitHub, so you can actually look at a lot of how it works. Not everything. Obviously, we have some intellectual property and some trade secrets, uh, but certainly the customers are well aware of, of what we're doing. Um, I mean, I do, the, the issue I raise somewhat on transparency is I worry it becomes a panacea. Uh, and, and an issue that we encounter certainly at Palantir um, is, you know, I am fully confident that we could throw open our doors to anyone who wanted to look. Uh, we could polygraph the entire company, let them look <laughs> through every drawer, every computer, uh, and there would be a, a not insignificant chunk of people who, if they didn't find what they were looking for, what they expected from their narrative, would say we hadn't shown them everything. Uh, the challenge for these organizations, for law enforcement, everybody, is proving the negative. Prove you're not doing something, and that's really difficult to do. So transparency is a big piece. We've got to do that. But then we have to figure out some way, and I don't, I don't want to rely on just trust us. Like That doesn't work either. Uh, but we've got to figure out some way to establish some kind of trust or relationship or something like that, because it's just not going to be possible. Now, now one of the things we do think about is when we're going through sort of our privacy engineering process, is we say we must guard against potential uses or the uses of this capability that it's intended to be used for. Uh, and then we still have to come up with credible guards against things it could be used for. Even though there's no intent to use it that way, it isn't going to be used that way because people will assume it is being used for the worst possible reasons, and maybe that's good for our own protection. Uh, we have to also engineer ways to make sure that people can be confident of that. But it's not easy to do. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, Margaret, uh, uh, Andrew touched on this briefly, but one of the big issues with these systems, in my mind, is error. I mean, you have mountains of data. These systems are trolling through, scouring, and you to get good, actionable intelligence and information predictions, you have to have data that's accurate, not out of date, not wrong in some fundamental way. So what do we know about how uh, companies are ensuring that this data is accurate and, and current and up to date? Well, right now, we basically have a regime of um, self-regulation of these corporations that we take them um, on goodwill because we don't really have a FDA equivalent, for example, um, that safeguards data and ensures that the data is being used in a way that is safe, accurate, and fair. And that would require a huge overhaul of our administrative regulatory scheme. We would need a brand new statutory originating um, you know, framework to be able to give that type of oversight. Or what we need to do is build in those types of protections into the framework that our courts use. So for example, our courts will often interrogate um, evidentiary um, conclusions on the basis of whether or not it's based on sound science. They will allow for confrontation of the witnesses um, and their scientific methods. And perhaps we need something similar with predictive policing. That Perhaps what we need is a more, uh, even in light of these trade secret um, uh, issues and challenges and intellectual property challenges, that maybe we'll, there will come a day that we feel like the ability to confront the algorithm, to confront the underlying databases, is more important to our, our liberties and freedoms. And it just, it's really hard. So take, take the most simple predictive policing of place thing. You have type of past crime, location, and time. So you think, okay, that should be easy to calculate, figure out where it is, and map there. 
But imagine you're a police officer. You see a person you think has a gun. He sees you, and he takes off running. And you capture him six blocks later. Where did the crime happen? Where you saw him, or were you captured? And if the rest of the predictions are going to be based on the precise geolocational place where the crime is, where did it occur? Did it occur both places? Now you're double counting. How are you going to pick? And what happens if the officer just writes it down wrong, right? Most police officers didn't get in the business to write down, you know, pay, do paperwork, right? There's so, and this is happening hundreds, thousands, millions of times a day in policing, right? The basic building blocks of data are messy, human, real, done by real people who make mistakes. And if everything is being predicated on that precision, you're going to find lots and lots of errors. John, how does Palantir deal with this issue? Uh, we do a lot of things to, to uh, deal with accuracy issues. I mean, uh, we make sure that the, the product is designed to allow collaboration so multiple people can look at the data and make their own evaluations. Any data point in the system is actually sourced back to an original source document uh, that then people can look at and evaluate, okay, was this a witness description, which can be unreliable, versus you know, something that was seen on a camera or court evidence or something like that. Uh, we allow for expressions of uncertainty within the system. So if somebody wants to link someone to someone else, you can actually say, well, we're only... 50% certain that this person is connected. Uh, we also model our database schema, which is sort of the architecture of the database, to allow uh, multiple uh, multiple properties for one thing. So for example, um, most database systems are, uh, you can have one field for eye color, let's say, right? So the eye color is blue, uh, somebody gets a new report, they say, now the eye color is brown, and the blue goes away. Uh, what Palantir does is it allows you to actually have four different eye colors if you want to in the system, uh, which you might think, okay, well, that's no good. But actually, it shows, okay, there's obviously some confusion here. This, this is maybe not reliable. So being a, uh, having a little bit more flexibility to be able to show more about your data um, is, is a pretty effective way to make sure that people are getting the full picture. Right. Uh, so we're getting close toward the end, but I'd like to sort of delve into the $64,000 question, which is, what do we know about how well these systems do at reducing crime, since that's ultimately what they're supposed to do? Um, can we, I'd like all of you to weigh in on this, maybe talk about the research, what we know. Right. First, it costs a lot more than $64,000 to hire some companies. Um, but the short answer is we don't know that much in terms of the reports. Take place-based predictive policing. Uh, there have been some peer-reviewed studies, really one, but many of them have come from the companies themselves are trying to sell the product. So peer-reviewed, we've got to take it with a little bit of a grain of salt. Um, there have been some peer-reviewed studies that are in the works that haven't been done. Uh, and there is a, uh, a real lack of funding for objective, data-driven, empirical analysis about whether this uh, works or not. Uh, and part of the problem is that it's not necessarily in, these in, in the interests. Like, so RAND did a study, uh, RAND Corporation did an objective study. They built their own predictive policing system in Shreveport, Louisiana. They did a whole, uh, you know, rollout with testing of people doing and some people not doing and tried to do a real scientific thing. And their conclusion was, well, it's not, nothing showed up. It's not statistically significant. We don't know if that's our fault. We don't know if it's the technology's fault. We don't know if there are other underlying problems. Like one of the problems in Shreveport was that they needed car, they were doing this in the summer and some of the police cars weren't air conditioned. And so people didn't want to use them. And so there was this weird, like, who would have thought that unair conditioned police cars might have destroyed the experiment? That might be one of the problems. But they, that's how granular it can get. Uh, for place-based predictive policing, again, there hasn't, I mean, person-based predictive policing, there haven't been studies that have shown it actually works. Um, there are anecdotal evidence, Taj Chicago Police Department, they're saying it's working. Um, but the debate is on. And I, I don't think we can say one way or the other whether it works or not. There's some good theories behind it. There's some theories about why it should work, which I'm happy to get into, um, but we don't have the data to show that it does. 
Margaret, would you like to add on that? Sure. Um, I think that it's really critical in answering that question to always keep in mind, and I know Andrea has written about this, but the distinctions between big data and small data, once again. Are we using small data methodologies to test for big data predictive technologies? And big data is so promiscuous. It uses all data necessary in order to, the assumption is, build the most accurate algorithms. But then when you actually see the testing models that are being used to assess whether these predictive policing systems work, a lot of times they're using a small data testing system. And I'm not sure whether or not there is a match there. Can you really accurately assess the efficacy of these big data predictive policing schemes under a small data frame of evidence. And for example, the Department of Homeland Security uh, Future Attribute Screening Technology Program, which is a predictive policing model or preemptive um, program, in that self-tested model where they use Department of Homeland Security um, employees as the test cases and they explain to them some of the consequences of the program would be including detention, deportation, possibly death, so this is what the testing subjects were informed as the consequences. They said that this predictive policing tool came up with approximately 70% accuracy. Are we ready to detain, deport, and potentially put people to death based on 70%, especially on a testing model that some experts say was a mismatch in the first place to actually test the technology? I think these are really critical questions for us to ask. John, what about Palantir? How, how are you guys doing at reducing crime? 27%. No, just kidding. Uh, <laughs> um, no, for all the reasons Andrew said, I mean, it's really difficult to figure out. I mean, if, where we count our success is really in efficiency and allowing officers to do things faster, things that took three weeks now to take a day, uh, just because they can work with the data faster. It's not, and they really haven't changed analytic techniques or what they're doing, they're just doing it more efficiently. Um, I think what's interesting and where these systems could be potentially helpful is you do have these audit trails and you have information about how the system is being used, so you could run analysis to figure out, okay, you know, what's our success rate here? How often does a tip or a lead lead to uh, you know, a conviction or whatever metric you want to use? We haven't figured this out. If you look at the uh, debate over the NSA, uh, uh, data usage and the Privacy Civilities Oversight Board report, there was huge disagreement. What is a success? What is a success? What is not a success? Uh, you do have to count, you know, maybe you clear someone, you investigate someone, you clear them of something. Well, that's potentially a success as well, right? Uh, so how do you actually factor that into calculation? I think the data is there. We just have to figure out how to use it to analyze the effectiveness of these systems, which makes sense. We want, we think we're effective. We want to show that we're effective. We want someone to define that. Uh, and then we also think there are a lot of snake oil salesmen out there who are selling things that don't work, and we want to be able to, to show that as well. So um, I think figuring that out would be a huge step. Are there any real-world examples you can point to when you put all these data streams together and an officer was able to look at something and say, aha, I see the connection that I didn't see before? Um, I mean, I think it's, it's bringing disparate uh, data points from different places. So, you know, one data set might show a link to an individual, and another data set might show a different individual link, and you put the three together, now you can see the three of them linked, right? It's, it's, it's bringing these together and then allowing them to talk to each other. It's kind of the success. Um, uh, we've had cases where you can look at license plate reader data and you can see, okay, a car uh, was in the vicinity of three suspected crimes all at the same time. That might be an interesting thing to investigate. It's, it's that kind of, and again, you couldn't, if you looked at just Alper data before, it's just a spreadsheet of data, right, with time, space, geostamps. And this actually presents it to you on a map or with a timeline and allows you to see it. It doesn't just spit out, check out this car. It just gives you the map. It gives you the information in a new, more consumable way. Oh, great. 
Um, final question for you guys. Uh, we've talked a little bit about the current technologies, police departments, the courts are deploying. What's the next generation of predictive policing and big data? Are we headed towards that minority report headline, 1984 headline? Uh, where are we going? Maybe we could all answer that. Sure. I mean, so, you know, I, uh, the, my book is called The Rise of Big Data Policing. I think we're at the very beginning of this process, right? Uh, we are starting to experiment. It's actually happening in different cities, but not everywhere. So LA might experiment with something, and New York might experiment with something. Reading, Pennsylvania might experiment with something. But no one's doing it all at once. And the limitations are twofold. One is cost. It really does cost money and the opportunity cost to doing it. And the other is the ability to do something with all this information, right? There, you can take uh, hours and years upon years of surveillance camera footage and do nothing with it or have automated license plate readers where you have millions upon millions of data sets, but you don't do anything with it, right? And part of the reason you don't do anything is that it's really hard without the new <laughs> technologies to be able to search through it to find useful information. But both of those things are changing, right? Cost is going to come down, and the ability to search through these big data sets is also going to be made easier with artificial intelligence and neural networks and other machine learning systems that will allow us to do more uh, with the data we've collected. So those things are going to change. And they're going to make the limitations less like limitations. Um, there's also a question of what we do, right? We're talking about the technology. What do we as citizens do, right? If you're concerned that this is an issue of liberty, how do you respond? What, do you, what should you do? And I hope that one of the lessons of this change of technology is that citizens get more involved in saying, you know, what are we doing now? I ask everyone I talk to, I say, here are two questions. Do you know what surveillance technology is being used in your city, if you live in D.C.? And if you don't know, where would you go to find that answer? I know the answer to that is, and even in this wise room, Neither, you don't know either answer to either of those questions. And that's a problem, right? There should be a place where you can go figure out what technology are being used. You should have some say in it because your tax dollars are being paid for. And we're just not having that conversation about how citizens should respond uh, to it. I know Cato's at the, uh, doing this, and the ACLU and CDT and EFF and other uh, uh, organizations are trying to rally around it. Uh, but this is something for everyone to do, to really engage in controlling the surveillance that's controlling you. Margaret? Yeah, I, I think that uh, we're not thinking big enough, even with the model of Minority Report or 1984, because right. a lot of these technologies that we're discussing right now are at the first generation level. So what we really need to think about is 100, 200 years from now, what's going to happen with this form of data collection, aggregation, and analysis, and what can the government do with it? And you already see the beginning stages right now with big data uh, basically um, preventing us from accessing our rights, liberties, and freedoms directly. And what the government is able to do is basically serve as a technological intermediary to use database screening and to use analytics to assign risk assessments in order for us to be able to fly, drive, vote, etc. And so one day we need to imagine a world where conceivably any freedom, right, liberty, um, privilege that we enjoy right now that we think we can directly access will be technologically mediated in some way. And perhaps not even technologically mediated against us as people, but or our digital footprints and maybe even generations intergenerationally, the data footprints of um, our, our digital selves. And John, where do you see Palantir going? What sort of novel solutions are you guys going to be developing in the next decade? Uh, so? Well, so, I mean, it's less, uh, so I will say this is just my opinion, uh, disclaimer here. Um, I mean, let's Palantir just more generally. I think, um, I think there's 
it's unpredictable in the sense that I think events are going to shape things. And I, I, what I sometimes in my both pessimistic, optimistic view, uh, I think there's going to be a day of reckoning for these systems and data at some point. There's going to be, sad to say, another major terrorist attack. And what I think is if you start digging into it right now, and you know, there's going to be the eventual investigation and what happened and stuff like that, there's going to be somebody who says, why were 300 federal law enforcement agents parsing Kardashian tweets uh, when this happened? I think there's so much data. Uh, and there's so many things that don't work or don't work well that are being used. And I think at some point, somebody's going to say, wait a minute, we're spending all this money on this unproven technology. We're collecting all this data, and we're, it's distracting. We're wasting our time. Uh, and there'll be a bit of a reset. I think people will say, OK, you know, let's, let's start from the, a little bit from the beginning here. Let's figure out uh, if this is really effective. Um, and that's unpredictable. I mean, again, it depends on an event. If there's an event that, that sort of pushes that along, uh, then I kind of wonder if there'll be a course correction in, in some way. Um, just so many. And, and, and it could be, honestly, social media, which does it, because there's so much attention spent on social media. And a lot of it is just not particularly useful data. Uh, and the tools that are built around it, sentiment analysis. If you look at any RFP from the government, to do social media analysis. They're looking for sentiment analysis tools. I have not seen a sentiment analysis tool that works. Uh, I've, we've even seen them tested against each other. We tested once three different sentiment analysis tools commercially available against each other uh, on a set of tweets. They all came up with completely different answers. Um, and, but we're relying on this. You know, we say we rely on this. And so I, I do think at some point, something's going to happen. There's going to be a blame cast around. And one of the things we're going to look at is, what were we doing with all this data and all this technology? That's interesting. Uh, well, I think now we'll probably just uh, throw it open to questions. Uh, do we have folks in the room with microphones who can go around? Let's see. I think this gentleman over here has a microphone, so why don't we start with him? Right here? <clears throat> Great. Yeah, uh, Les Jamison. Uh, in early November, I interviewed William Binney, uh, and this was about three or four weeks just after the incident in Lower Manhattan where uh, a Muslim man mowed down eight bike riders, basically, with a, a rented U-Haul pickup truck. So I asked him, could thin thread technology, by the way, thin thread, hope everybody goes and looks what the uh, thin thread is all about if you don't know. Uh, it was available prior to 9-11. Thomas Drake, whistleblower, used it to analyze the bulk data around 2002 or three, and did, in fact, find traces of the, the evidence that led to the 9-11 attacks. So I asked Benny, what about this recent attack? Could Thin Threat have, have detected it? He said, yes, absolutely, because there, was a, there were digital uh, uh, traces from this individual showing that he um, was uh, <clears throat> following ISIS websites, downloads, et cetera, like that, a lot of it. And he added, same thing for many of the previous attacks throughout Europe and, and so forth. So um, in terms of solutions and the logical uh, types of policies, NSA and all the other you know, law enforcement needs to be uh, pursuing, it seems like it's all been counterintuitive. Thin thread technology is the solution that could still be um, used, but rather than implement it, the opposite has occurred. So is there a will to hold accountable people such as uh, the House Intelligence Committees, the, uh, any other oversight institutions? And, and um, 
and, and, and all the other decision makers. By the way, uh, Patrick Eddington's article in uh, JustSecurity.org on Michael Hayden, great source to uh, lay out the argument why there, there's still, there's not been accountability in terms of uh, the, all the, the programs that we're, we're under that has put us in this bulk data age and this uh, minority report reality. Does anyone want to field that one? I think that what we really need to remember, once again, that this is horizontal data um, that we're in right now. We're, we're in a collected all regime because the statistical algorithmic structures demand it. And so, so long as we believe in the efficacy that these systems work, I'm not sure that there is any way to rein in these systems. I'm not sure there is any way to hold them accountable because they're considered to be the most efficient way or the most successful way that we have to stop the next terrorist attack. So as long as that presumption is out there that we need to collect it all, that we can collect it all, that we should collect it all, and that stopping the next 9-11 is the core governance goal, then I'm not sure we have any statute, regulation, or constitutional protections in place to, um, to basically roll that back. Yeah, I'll just say, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to armchair quarterback after something has happened. I mean, law enforcement, you know, generally law enforcement are good people. They're trying to do the right thing. They're trying to do it in the right way. They recognize the gravity of what they're doing. And, you know, I think they, they are going to be careful about, you know, what they do with information that they have. And, you know, their assessment of the reliability of it, especially if they can't see under the hood or they aren't quite as sure of it. I mean, one of the things we tell our engineers, especially when we're doing stuff for intelligent and law enforcement, is we say, look, how confident are you in what you're building? Because the result of this, two, three steps down the line, is someone ends up with a loaded gun pointed in their face, right? And so what's our responsibility for that? We want to take responsibility for that. So, you know, I, 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 I think that is kind of in your head when you're trying to make these decisions about what you're doing and where, or who you're going after and things like that. And so, yeah, I think people take a lot of care. I'm not sure. It's, it's easy to look after it's happened and say, ah, yes, well, there are all the breadcrumbs. But when you're in the heat of the moment and you're seeing not just those breadcrumbs but a thousand other breadcrumbs in front of you, it's not so easy. <clears throat> Somebody want to hand out a microphone to whoever's raising their hand? There you go. Hi, thanks. Sarah St. Vincent, Human Rights Watch. Um, I have two questions. Actually, if I stand up, then you all can't see around me, so I'll just sit down. <laughs> um, so I have a, a question for you, John, which is that are you happy with the level of diversity on your team, and do you think it matters to the, the extent to which engineers who design these systems are themselves diverse? Um, and for you, Andrew, I have a question, which is um, can you talk a bit about social class and gender as it relates to these data sets? Because I think that, you know, although it was off the cuff, it, it was interesting that you chose, you know, wine aficionado as... as you know, an example of a, a group that, I know you don't mean to suggest that a subscriber to that magazine may not be dangerous, but I do think that it's, I think they're, it's interesting to me to think about potential, you know, potential nexus between the criminalization of poverty and kind of the policing of the poor, and does that kind of feed into these systems, what we criminalize, what we detect, what we punish, as opposed to some social, social groups that may have more of a kind of protective screen around them. And similarly with gender, I'd be curious whether these systems, for example, do they see someone who has assaulted their spouse or girlfriend or a romantic partner or children as, as violent or as likely to be violent as someone who has, say, assaulted a stranger or supposedly gang-affiliated? So I was wondering if you might be able to talk about those things. Thank you. Uh, so uh, rare diversity, um, it's a huge problem in Silicon Valley. Uh, and I think the real issue is uh, empathy. 
um, you know, you need to have, you need to understand how these systems are affecting people. Uh, and to do that, you need to understand for the people who are affected by them, right, in their particular viewpoint. Um, we actually just yesterday, uh, a group of the affinity groups at Palantir uh, were meeting and sort of talking about what is our purpose within the organization? What is our business purpose? And we, we sort of hit on that's one of the things we need to do. Uh, because it's a different experience for everyone. Um, for African Americans, their experience with law enforcement, they're going to be over-indexed on, they're going to be over-represented in the data. Uh, I'm a gay man from a gay perspective. We are totally absent from law enforcement data, right? It's just not recorded. So, you know, are we being ignored? Is there a problem that should be addressed for our community that maybe we want more law enforcement attention? Uh, so diversity, having diversity in these organizations is essential for getting that viewpoint. And again, it builds better analytics. Um, so all Silicon Valley needs to work on this. And it's something we're working on at Palantir. My team is pretty diverse. It could be more diverse, uh, and I'd like it to be. Uh, and, and, and that's a, it's a huge part of our, our recruiting strategy. <clears throat> <clears throat> terrific question. So there's a whole chapter in my book called Data Holes in terms of like, we have these sort of different levels of data. So consumer data tends to track people who have money because that's who they want to sell, right? So if you think about if, if your predictive system was based on catalogs, that kind of thing, you might actually have more information about people of means and not people who you wouldn't actually spend the resources on, right? But in the policing space, it's the people where the police are, where the arrests are happening, those communities that are going to be over-policed, right? So if you look at who's in the police data set, it's going to be, uh, it's going to be undiverse or too diverse in the sense of it's going to be mostly people of color uh, and in certain communities where class and, and uh, race are, are correlated. So that's a real, real concern in terms of the types of systems you're going to predicate your predictive systems on, maybe only capturing different groups and then be capturing them unequally, right? Where... Uh, in some ways, if all of your police system done was done based on wine aficionado type magazines, it actually would be profiling the people of means, right? And there'd be a whole group of people who would actually not be in the big data system because the big data companies don't care enough about them to get that data right. Um, but of course, a lot of this is law enforcement data, and so arrests and contacts and all those things can build systems of primarily uh, poor people and primarily people of color. In terms of domestic violence, there's another reality. So if you base a predictive policing system on the crimes that you know occur, you are automatically only looking at the crimes that are either happening in public or being reported. One of the reasons why burglary, car theft, and theft from auto began the predictive policing thing is because those tend to be reported in some communities with insurance uh, to your insurance company, right? You might know that those happen. Uh, crimes like sexual assault, domestic violence, and certain trafficking don't necessarily show up in this data set. And so if all your money is being invested in the crimes that you see and can count, it's going to mean that there's a whole series of crimes that get devalued and aren't going to be the focus. That said, there have been some interesting experiments. Uh, New York, for a while, uh, was looking at domestic violence calls, recognizing a lot of domestic violence is cyclical. You might have one incident, but that might keep going higher and higher and get worse and worse. And so they realized they had too many calls to actually essentially send people back every time, but they started scanning the reports using artificial intelligence-like things to say, are there words or trigger words that might cause to be like, these are the people we need to focus on. And they actually sent patrols back to those domestic violence families uh, to keep checking on the ones they thought were more at risk for violence. So there, here was this weird way of recognizing that they couldn't uh, surveil the, the whole world of domestic violence uh, families, but there were ones that they were more worried about. And they prioritize their resources to those groups. And you know, they thought it was at least a helpful way to sort of triage the, the influx of uh, domestic violence calls. So there's a, a po perhaps a positive story of using uh, the technology. Other calls? Was someone right up here? 
Thanks. Um, my name is Charles Lehman. I'm a staff writer of the Washington Free Beacon. Um, so historically, there's a there, uh, sort of categorically, there's a strong relationship between uh, political power and knowledge. Um, there's there's a lot of there are a lot of different angles to this. Uh, for example, the ability of historically oppressed marginalized communities to resist the application of state or police power is directly related to how well they are understood by the overbearing power. Um, the, the, the phrase James C. Scott is legibility. Um, and, and it does seem to me that the rise of big data, to, to borrow Andrew's phrase, the rise of big data policing is essentially uh, a, a total paradigm shift in how finally uh, those with power are able to see and therefore control those who do not have power. Um, and to, to be frank, conversations about you know transparency or what well, conversations we need to have feel a little bit like rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic to me. Uh, so I, I, I suppose the question is, it, it, it seems to me that there is no way that this ends that doesn't result in us being substantially less free. You know, with Cato Institute, we care about that a little bit. Um, Am I right? Am I wrong? Can you reassure me? Do you see? Hopefully, hopefully, you all see what I'm getting at. Maybe I'm, you know, talking out of whatever. Uh, but, but I, I, I'm not sure there's a way to close that Pandora's box. Sort of, you know, destroying all the technology. Is there anything we can do? It's a big question. Hmm. Well, you know, I think so. To me, one of the the interesting examples of how technology has been used in the last couple of years uh, was. A, a, a aerial surveillance system called persistent surveillance systems. It's basically a Cessna plane filled with incredibly fancy cameras that can fly over communities and record the entire community in real, you know, real time and save uh, for weeks, months, as long as they want to do it. And they were flying over West Baltimore until Bloomberg News uh, did an expose about uh, this thing. And what they could do was they literally could be flying over and listen to the radio runs and say, okay, there's an armed robbery at the corner of 4th and Elm. And they could play back the tape to see the armed robber get in the car and drive off and end up at his mom's house. And they could literally package it up and say, here, Baltimore Police Department, you had a report of a robbery. We saw it. Here's the car. Here's where he ended up. Go investigate. And that was all interesting investigation, except no one had told the city uh, council of Baltimore, the mayor, and the chief didn't really know what was going on either, right? And once it was known, thanks to journalists, and exposed, it got shut down, right? And that, to me, is a sense of when the community is aware of it, when there is some engagement, say, like, this isn't the world we want to live in, or if it is, let's have a conversation before we do this, that that kind of uh, check could happen. If you engage citizens on a local level, you don't seem convinced. I can see it. You can't see it. It does not look convinced. If you can engage in citizens on a local level and say this is your civil liberties, your tax dollars, and your use, like instead of buying that plane, you could fund you know, more after-school programs or more police officers, give police officers raises, lots of things you could do with that money. Uh, but instead of that, uh, instead of that, you're buying this technology you think is a solution. Let's have that conversation because I'm not sure necessarily we'll end up in the surveillance state. I think there might be pushback if people are educated about this change in our uh, relationship with private, privacy and liberty. Because I, I mean, you say you actually hit on there are such huge issues and implications to these technologies, and I think sometimes we get too focused on sort of the you know the, does the technology work, does it not work, and, and sort of the basic mechanics of it. But the thing that surprises most people about the privacy and civil liberties engineering team at Palantir is that I have two philosophers on the team, uh, people pursuing PhDs in political philosophy. Uh, 
And first of all, all philosophy professors are delighted that we found employment for philosophers. But uh, <laughs> the, other, uh, the other issue is their job is to ask those questions and to think bigger, or these broader implications, um, and to actually think through these incredibly complex, incredibly fundamental questions. Uh, now, we don't deal with this, but I think a great example currently happening now is the end-to-end encryption debate. What's fascinating to me about that is it's creating, for the first time, a space that government absolutely cannot reach. And there are pros to that, there are cons to that, but I think the conversation that we need to be having is, well, why do we create governments? And what happens when suddenly we carve out a space that is totally untouchable by government? The only other analogy is your, your brain, so far, anyway. Uh, and uh, you know, so this is, this is a fundamental change, right, in sort of the order of the world. Uh, and so we have to be talking about that, not just how do you do it mechanically and how does it work for Facebook WhatsApp, you know, what is the actual implication? So I think we have to think bigger, uh, and I think that's what you're hitting on. We have time for one more question. If someone wants to jump in. I write a book review column for a regional publication, and I recently reviewed a book titled Weapons of Math Destruction. And it's a real cautionary plea by this Harvard PhD mathematician not to go in this direction, essentially. It's not transparency, it's not accuracy, it's the mathematics. To think that you can translate human nature and human activities into a mathematical algorithm, she argues, is so harmful and bogus, and she would just say, don't do it. In, in terms of job applications, she said 72% of all resumes submitted are never seen by a human person. If they don't match the algorithm that these companies think they're saving money by using, then they're spit out. And that is true at just about every level that we're, we've been using them, and it's frightening how bandwagons can emerge for unproven methods or, or technology in and of itself is treated almost as godlike and that it's infallible. And we really have a lot of solutions to the problems we're spending this money um, misguidedly to address. I mean, we know how to deter most crimes. We just don't spend the money. I mean, the research documents that if you make every classroom in every school, certainly the lower economic level schools, a gifted and talented classroom, you'll have the same results. And the same thing's true for jobs, job training. Housing stability is by far the most important factor to reduce crime by stabilizing these individuals, and then other aspects of their life can become stable if the opportunities are there. It's an excellent book. It's, it's a real warning. Um, and when I send out a resume now, I think I'm supposed to try to design my resume to match an algorithm. It's almost insanity in, in some ways, and certainly thoughtless cannot take human beings out of the loop. That, that's sort of our philosophy when we're designing capabilities. The human being has to be, is still the best analyst in the world, and has to be at the top of the decision-making chain. Well, that's a good place to end it. Thank you guys very much, and thank you all for listening. Thank you.